So welcome to Gold Digging, where we, uh, we dig for nuggets of gold from uh, friends and family. I was gonna laugh at that. <laughs> okay. Gold dig digging, I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad I've got gold. Let me get this one out the <laughs> way. And uh, I'm super excited to uh, welcome my uh, long-term personal friend. Um, I'll say Tinker Taylor, filmmaker, storyteller, <laughs> Oswald Botang OBE. Oswald, it's yeah. great to have you on Gold Digging and thank you for allowing us to dig around <laughs> your gold nuggets. As our first post-lockdown guest, just tell us how you spent your lockdown and, and what you wore. <laughs> so I wasn't wearing a suit, just oh, to let you know. That's disappointing. Yeah, no. You don't have pyjamas, the, the suit like. No, no, I was wearing, I was wearing this, uh, I had this fabric I designed from a company called Lisco. He does these African prints. And so um, I designed some cloth from some uh, like a couple of years ago, and I decided to make a series of kimonos oh, and brilliant. kind of wide leg trouser. Yeah. And basically, that's why I wore the whole lockdown. Right. I didn't go out. The, I didn't go out in the street in them. Well, but, I, but it, I, should, I almost oh, it was a couple of times because there was no one on the street, right? There was no one here. No. So I could have got away with it. But you know, it's interesting because I was talking to someone who runs online sales for Versace. Mm. And, and he was, they're, they're, they're kind of, it just went crazy because they got 27 stores that were all closed, same as everybody, mm. and then their online sales went through the roof. And he said, the things that people were buying, you can't even believe. He said, I'm, I think all the Versace clients were sitting around in really, really fancy like Versace dressing gowns and pajamas <laughs> and loads of jewellery. He said, wow. the jewellery, like they do like fashion yeah, yeah, jewellery, yeah. just decked out. Which you can kind of imagine, going people all around, well, you and your, your bright colour kimono, yeah. a load of gold rings on. Yeah, well, that would be good. Yeah. Anyway, that's all behind us mm. now, and we're all rebuilding. But um, let's let's go right back to the start. So, Muswell Hill. Yeah. 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 Uh, Barnet College. Computer. Uh, no, Southgate College. Southgate College, yeah. Computer Science. Yeah. Quit that. Yeah. Discovered your mother's sewing machine. <laughs> that's, that's, yes. I, well, the truth is, I didn't discover it. Well, okay. But because it was in the house yeah, and I couldn't avoid it. But the, the, rea the truth is she needs to make clothes. And, um, and I always said as a kid watching them sewing, I will never do that. So that was kind of like the, the thing what, I've never wanted to do. Did it look like hard work or what? Just, I just thought, no, this is not for me. I'm going to be this really smart entrepreneurial guy and you ain't going to be sewing. So okay. that's, that was a mindset. So you then took up sewing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, and, that's the funniest part of it. And changed yeah. to a fashion course. And then, uh, this, is, this is a little pricey. So mm. then, you, uh, then you became the youngest tailor on Savile Row. Mm. And then you revolutionised men's fashion in England. Mm. So did you intend it to be that disruptive? Or was, was this sort of as, it, as it, you took no, it as it I, came? Jim, I'm, it's interesting because, you know, there's... There's many versions of that story I give out, right? But the real story, I'd say, you know, the kind of real kind of point was it is, is very much about my upbringing and how I was brought up in London and where I was brought up. That really kind of shaped why I chose Savile Row over anywhere else. Because in fact, when I was in, my, so I started fashion design at 16 and kind of set up my business around 16, 17 years old. And uh, when I decided to open my store on Savile Row, that wasn't the best place to open the shop. Common Garden was the place. Right. So um, I strategically opened Savile Row for a number of reasons. And that comes back to my upbringing, which was, you know, I was brought up in, uh, so I brought up in Muzzle Hill. And then my parents got divorced and I ended up living in Wood Green. And from, let's say, from like 8 to 12 or something like this, we lived on this block. And on the block we had uh, skinheads in one corner and teddy boys in, on the other. And so, uh, yeah. We're, we're yeah, yeah, in the middle. yeah, we're right in the middle. <laughs> right, placed beautifully in the middle. And the, 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 the point it was is getting to school and back to school was a stress. Yeah. Like daily. Right. Do you, do you, you got a decision, am I going to take the teddy boy end or the skinhead end? I have to say it was very much like yeah. that. And so, but, so I had to develop a whole series of techniques to get by the corner without getting stressed. 
So, you know, if you were too overconfident, you'd get a headache. If you were too scared, you got a headache. So you had to find this crazy balance between the two. And, and I had to learn how to do that. So, you know, and I, and I it's interesting because I didn't, you know, when anyone asks me my story, I would never bring this up, right? I kind of skip that section and move straight into, mm. you know, me opening up in Savile Row. But in truth, it uh, formed and helped me kind of understand how to navigate difficult cultural mm. issues, right? Yeah. And so, and that was kind of instilled in me. So, because I'm older than you, but and my first fashion, conscious fashion, was being a skinhead. Yeah. But being a skinhead in when and that was like. 1970 or yeah, something, yeah. was quite an inclusive thing. Yeah, we we yeah. only really like reggae. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And you were just as likely to have a black mate or an Indian mate yeah, that yeah. worked up as a big yeah, Indian yeah. community who was a skinhead. Yeah. And it was later, it got kind of, yes. I don't know if, I, if it, that was about yeah, that's you exactly. were there, so I'm saying then it became a whole different thing. That, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking for me, 70s, right? It's late, late 70s. And yeah, I mean, whatever, the, there was definitely um, a shift because, you know, I even had a, interesting enough, there was a guy that I got to know later who was, was a black skinhead. It's actually a movie we made about him. Mm. So, um, yeah, but yeah, my experience, unfortunately, wasn't the inclusive version of that. It was pretty, you know, yeah. full on. Yeah. But what it did is, is it enabled me and it shaped me. So it, it made me understand that I needed to uh, find a way to readdress those issues. So when I, so when I decided to design clothes and I you know, realized I had uh, talent for that, uh, a friend of mine said to me, look, you should go to Savile Row, check it out. So I'm 18 and I go, right, so I get out of Savile Row and I meet this really famous tailor there called Tommy Nata, yeah. <laughs> wearing my suit, he sees it, he sees me standing in his window, looking in. He comes out. He goes, oh, nice suit. I'm going, yeah, because I'm 18, right? I made it, <laughs> right? And, uh, and he liked what I created. And then he showed me how he made bespoke suits inside the space. And that's when I kind of had this realization that if I combine my creative design approach to this traditional skill, I could create something very unique, mm. right? Yeah. So then... Um, so when I got out of the store, I, it kind of hit me that that's what I needed to do. I needed to open up on the road. Because not only I could create something new, I knew the cultural impact of me being on that street. Mm. So, so that's where it really formed. And it took me like, uh, it took me eight years to get on there. Yeah, eight years. Mm. Yeah. So it was funny, wasn't it, several row? Because it was like you, the only evidence there was a workroom behind, but there would be a style of suit, wouldn't it? Yeah, it was all those tailors. Yeah, yeah. It was more like you go to them because that's their style. Yes. Because the fabrics, honestly, they all looked bad. So yeah. I yeah, know they yeah. weren't because it's different yeah, weights, yeah, yeah, different yeah, checks, yeah. but they were all classic. And it didn't look like a very... It looked like um, something that was all about technique rather mm. than sort of making waves. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Technique, very key. Yeah. Because... Because every tailor had their cut, right? So for me to go there, I had to have my, my distinct style. And so there was a certain particular shape that the tailors had, almost like this sort of silhouette, kind of hourglass silhouette, I would say. But, and I basically nuanced that to make it a little bit more, in a way, more feminine, actually. But, um, but even though I was, it had a... It had a feminine appeal. It wasn't necessarily feminine. And I used to create with that very consciously, try to create tailoring that was beautiful to look at. Mm. And so that became my, also my, my thing. You, you, you talk about your father being an inspiration. Yeah, he's yeah. from Ghana. Yeah. So was he, how would you describe his style? He wore tailored suits. Right. So. But were they... Were they noticeable in the fact that they, like, were they in any way, or were they colourful, or would you have a colourful shirt, no, or no, just no, no, really no, smart, no. This classic? smart, smart yeah. tailored suits. In fact, <clears throat> you know, I went to a private school when I was very young. My parents, you know, really worked hard to send me there. 
And uh, so I started school at three years old, which is, I mean, went to some really posh school in Muswell Hill where they served you free course lunches and you had to learn how to eat properly. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but, but the thing about it is, is um, I had this school uniform and that uniform and the whole dressing up to go to school kind of laid in the foundation. You liked putting on your oh, uniform? Oh, yeah, it was great. Oh, I my mean, God. Yeah, because you had, because there's a lot of pieces. It was a tailor jacket, then the knitwear, the shirt, the tie, then you wore shorts or trouser, and then you had the cap. So it was a whole look. So you weren't, oh, my God, we used to just want to. Oh, yeah, and the socks. Yeah, the whole thing. Destroy it. No, no, no. <laughs> my, no. Out my school badge was a hedgehog on a boat. <laughs> and, and the things we would do with that hedgehog. Yeah, uh, unspeakable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I like my uniform. You wanted to kind of unravel your tights and it was only about that long. <laughs> like, the rest was gone. I mean, anyway, I'd, uh, uh, that's interesting. I no, no, I that, really, yeah. really like my Never uniform. Never met anyone who this school uniform. <laughs> I, was so, probably, I was probably really young, you know. It was young. Free, it was free to like uh, six or something. And then I went to another school and, you know, it all changed. But I, that also framed my liking and desire for dressing up. Yeah. Mm. So you, you, when you left school, you were young, mm. you went to, you went west though, Port Bella Road. Yeah, you Port Bella Road, yeah. So you must have felt more comfortable there than that first day when you stood outside Tommy Nutter's. Yeah, uh, And yeah. just thinking, because culturally it's mixed. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a place that just feels like uh, anything can happen. Yeah. It still kind of does, yeah. not so good, but yeah, in a way. No, no, so no, for me, so Notting Hill, because I used to go to the Notting Hill Carnival. So I used to go there from like when I was 16. So Notting Hill was always this amazing cultural mixing pot, mm. you know, and that, the great thing was, is it was, you had very wealthy people, you know, trust the fans, but we called them something else then even. And then you had, um, mixed in with, you know, people on the street, quite literally. Yeah, yeah. And he had, a, but the time, the, that particular time when I was there was quite unique because there's a lot of artists, musicians, it was a bit of a collective. So, you know, that's why I met Seal, a lot of big photographers like David Sims and Jamie Morgan. And so Mark were they the from there? Or they were they? all in the area. Yeah, yeah. So there was a real, um, it was a real creative hub. But you, so there you, you started to build uh, quite an interesting uh, sort of repertoire of clients, yeah, including yeah. Mick Jagger yeah, yeah. and uh, some others, which yeah. I've got down, Jimmy Page yeah, yeah. and, no, and, funny, and Spike Jimmy, Lee. Yes. That's quite a mix. It is, because, because <laughs> uh, in funny enough, I remember when I got Jimmy Page as a client, I didn't even know who he was. Did you have a showroom or something? I had a showroom. I used to own this building on Portobello Road where they put the Banksy was. I don't even know if there was a Banksy on the Portobello Road. So on that wall, above the Falafel King. I'm trying to think if I knew who the Banksy was. Is it, It's not by the bridge. Yeah, it's right, right by the bridge, okay, right, right opposite think, the bridge, yeah, right yeah, there, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, okay. So that building yeah. used to be, you know, my, I used to own that building and my studio was on the first floor. And so... Um, How did they know about you? Because uh, I got a lot, I, interesting, I got quite a bit of press quite early. So really around 18, 19 years old, I was kind of in ID face. Mm. And those days, those magazines were like, oh, almost yeah. like Bibles of yeah. fashion. Yeah. And so, uh, so I got publicity there. And then I got a little, then I, I got a bit of TV coverage. And then, you know, in the early sort of early 90s, I sort of recognized the opportunity of tailoring and uh, I started to basically put this, a story out called New Breed of Tailors. So again, another story I don't really tell, but I'll tell it now, is um, I got a friend of mine to, uh, to basically create a trend around tailoring. So what we did is, is we, we, um, he went to all the magazines GQ magazines and basically said, oh, do you, you know, went to the editors and said, look, do you know about this new breed of tailors? And basically create the story. And of course, like anyone. Was there any, any other tailors? We kind of understood there was a few people that we could put together because the whole, whole thing about this was we, um, we and I understood and he, we needed to create a movement. So uh, we then found other tailors that we knew. I mean, Mark Powell was one of them. 
uh, I think John Pierce, but John Pierce, uh, there was like four or five guys that we, you know, we sort of talked about. And of course, no editor wants to know that they don't know. No, right, yeah. So then suddenly they picked up the story and it became a thing. Good now, inter but interesting thing about it was, um, because obviously I was very much, I knew what the story was, because you know, we started it. So uh, I kind of got in the mix and, you know, basically had more to say about it. Because the, the uniqueness of the position of the tailoring was very much about, because uh, uh, tailoring at that point was almost going out, of it was going out of fashion, right? So the idea was, is how do you bring new life into something which is old? And that's about how create your creative approach. So basically we'll find we're encouraging this creative approach to tailoring. Mm. <clears throat> and so after that, after that trend had been created, so we're talking, basically 19, I'd say 90, 91, 92 was the, the period. So then in 93, I realized the way to make it a global thing was I had to do a fashion show in Paris. Right. In those days, I mean, no British designer went to Paris. Well, they, and there were no tailors. Well, there were definitely no tailors, but, the, <laughs> but this designer's period. The only designer at that time who did a catwalk show was Paul Smith. And he had a huge business in Japan. Mm. And you've got to understand also, uh, 1990 in the UK was brutal. Mm. It's the day when the interest rates doubled. I don't know if you remember I remember that. it, yes. Um, I own property. I had a mortgage. Yeah, so yeah. no, thank you. So we both understand <laughs> what that was. It went from 7.5% to 15% in one day. Right. So everyone was hemorrhaging. So I was working through navigating that, and I'm sure you remember how difficult that was. And then in 93, I decided that if I was really gonna make a name, I needed to get out of the UK. And that's when I took the gamble and did the show in the- So how do you, uh, I don't know how it Paris. works in Paris. If you, is there someone you have to ask? Or do yeah, you just so go, I'm doing a show and this is the time? No, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole, I imagine that you uh, that's a whole that. equation. But the, the point was, is I already had um, some really good press and some French magazines, like I think Vogue Home and uh, Glamour. And, and so I was ready at this point, I'm, I'm a pretty, I'm a known entity, mm. right? Um, and there was interest in my work, you know, and I was also, selling to a few stores and so I was starting to build a bit of a reputation but the big gamble was going to Paris and I met this guy um what was his name God, a long time but I ended up doing a, a show at the Mondala in Paris which is on Rue de Paradis beautiful space he basically offered me the space for free and then it was about me paying for everything else which was really hard so I mortgaged my house to to uh, build a collection and get all the pieces. And then I had a couple of friends who helped me because as you, every time you put a budget together, it doesn't quite work out. No. You always go over budget. <laughs> and a couple of friends of mine who kind of just saw me like in it, sort of said, look, I help you. So I mean, great. apart from the fact that, you know, you're British, you're a tailor to, you did a video yep. as the invite, yep. which I read was, was a first as well. Yep. But what would go was menswear even a category? No, no, no. no. <laughs> I know that sounds a bit ridiculous, but I'm thinking about no, 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 no. You know, you're right. You're right. So no, Paul Smith would have been menswear, but yeah, no, no, it's a the, handful, wasn't no, it? The thing about it is, in this time, menswear was was very high fashion. It was, you know, there was an interesting relationship with men's fashion and men. You know, so you had the classic. So you're either very classic or you're very fashion. Mm. There was nothing in the, between the two bridging them. And so that's why I saw this opportunity. Mm. And so I basically bridged it. And also created a whole new sort of area of menswear. And then, and, and in fact, Paul Smith was really strong on his casual wear. Yeah, his shirts. You know, his shirts and socks and, you know, and he had a really good, interesting look but I would say what I definitely did, and I don't think anyone would argue with it, is I definitely made 
tell in front of the house mm. because after I did my show, I did I got a huge amount of press after the show, and uh, and I basically with all the press I talked about tailoring. So then tailoring in a fashion context suddenly became, yeah. became this piece. So Ralph Lauren created a purple label of the kind of back of the opportunity and then even um, Tyson, the model, you know, which was a very unique proposition back then. But when I uh, started to build my brand, my campaign, I was like the shape bald head guy in a suit. And then I feel that uh, I've definitely, it definitely inspired people. Yeah. And that, that's no doubt. Yeah. Well, you own your store on Vigo Street, yeah. right? which yeah. you said Covent Garden was where it's at. Well, that's where Paul Smith was. Yes, I don't know exactly. what else was in Covent Garden at the time. I can't even think. Yeah, no, like, I mean, Covent Garden, yeah. I mean, it was definitely because, I mean, virtually owned Floral Street. Yeah, you had, like, yeah. I don't like know how many stores. Yeah, it was in one of his yeah. shops. So, and then, but it was just the place to be. The traffic was there. And if I really wanted to, to make a noise, that would have been a smarter play. It's mm. open up there. But I think, I, I... Commercially, commercially. I think somewhere in there, you took that spot on Vigo Street, which is a very unlikely address. But you could see all the way down Savile Road. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I imagine you were keeping your eye out for when, when, when a spot opened up that, you, that caught your eye. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the, the truth of it is um, I put in a, a bid on another store. And for whatever reason, I wasn't able to get it. And then the store on Vigo Street was available. And I, it kind of wasn't my first option. But then um, uh, I took it and actually turned out to be one of the smartest moves. Because the thing about that, the Vigo Street, is the traffic light. So what will happen is you'd always have this clog of traffic. So basically every taxi in London knew my store, <laughs> yeah. quite literally. Yeah. You get in a black taxi, say, where are you going? So Savarone, you go, going to Botang. I mean, quite literally it was like this. So uh, it was actually from a, it turned out to be a really smart commercial move, actually. Yeah. Well, I, um, that's when I discovered you. I don't know if I was in a cab or not, I can't remember. <laughs> but um, it wasn't in 94, it was about 95. And I was, I had my store in Manchester Square, yeah. which I was only there because it was so cheap. Yeah. And uh, Marlborough somehow had got forgotten, hadn't it? It was like nobody yes. even yeah, knew no, where no, was. No, 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 yeah, and, yeah. and my address was 1A Duke Street. And, uh, and at the time, I'd, there was the Duchess of Duke Street yeah. on TV. And, and I was selling mainly in America, and they just thought that was probably the poshest address you could find on Duke Street. I mean, the fact that it was like, this, it used to be a hat shop, and you could just about swing a hat in it. But, um, so anyway, I was, doing, I was doing my first party for my Cloth of Gold collection, and, uh, and I so wanted an Oswald Boateng suit. Oh. But I, I didn't have the money. But I had a girlfriend at the time who was very resourceful, Became my wife, but uh, <laughs> somehow she's managed to get me an appointment in Vigo Street, and I, I will never forget. I'd never, yeah, because even though I knew that I wanted one, I didn't really know. I'd not been in. It yeah. looked like there was a colourful place. Yeah. And I left with a tangerine suit with an electric <laughs> blue lining, and honestly, the sun shone out of my ass in that suit. It was crazy. <laughs> And I, I, I had my party on the square, and it, we, it was our first event that we'd done of any sorts. Mm. And uh, Tara Palmer Thompson yeah, yeah. came to the bike. Yeah. And the next Sunday, it was me and her, she had that page. Do you remember it was that yeah, page in yeah. Sunday Times Absolutely. Magazine. It was me and her in this fucking suit, right? It was amazing. <laughs> and I, without the suit, I wouldn't have been on that page. <laughs> There's no question about it. But um, yeah. yeah, so, and then afterwards, I. Uh, it led to my purple suit, <laughs> which, exactly. uh, which I might as well carry on talking a bit about you and I. But that purple suit, I know we've, we've talked about it before. It was, I've got it with me. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. I'm oh, going to get my daughter to go and yeah, get it. It doesn't work very well on a podcast. <laughs> I just want to no. see your yeah, face. Yeah, yeah. I'll see it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so now I've got a purple suit and I went and did my first big show in Las Vegas. And... 
the, everybody was talking about oh, this wow. guy. They're, they're going, I had a, a booth that was so small, it was like a table in a cupboard under the stairs, right? <laughs> it couldn't have been more off the floor. And the first thing is David German's coming around, he's mm. a bit like the Ralph Lauren here, joining you going, you got to see this guy. He's got this purple suit. He's got the most rock and roll jewelry I've ever seen. You've got to go and see oh, wow, him. Wow. The next thing is, I've got every editor is around my table. Wow. And, and, and then everyone wanted me in their store, so they're like, but they would do requests, you're going to bring the purple suit, won't you? <laughs> I mean, and I, I, I actually keep it at work. Sorry about the cover. I do have plenty of your covers, but I didn't have one with me. So we're going to, uh, we're unveiling the oh, purple wow. suit. Wow. So this is from about 90. Seven or something. Yeah, yeah it is. Okay. I actually remember yeah, there it. There we go. I've got the tie. I've got the fucking lot. Mate. Wow. Yeah. Can you still fit that? Yeah. Well, I'm jealous. <laughs> That's really not it fair. It could. It could maybe need taking a little bit in. You're kidding. No. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, it's at its wear. I'm telling you, this got. Wow. This got well and truly worn. Now, and so yeah. that fabric I yeah. designed, and but that I've got. I mean, that's that's great memories. That. Mm. That's a very. That's uh, that's beautiful. That one. It, it, it's yeah, it's, it's funny how you. I uh, do you know what you're talking about skinheads and uh, one oh, of the great things about skinheads was the tonic suit. Yes. And I, I didn't have a suit. I had the trousers, tonic trousers, and this this is a bit reminiscent of that, yeah. that kind of. Well, I mean, the, it's, I might have to say a bit more mod. Yeah. Mod. Oh, you know, right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah mod. Mod. Like mod. Rude boy. You know, kind of uh, yeah. two tone suit. Anyway, that was great, and that. Um, I think was helped with with uh, me making my getting my place very very quickly in America because I was in an industry a bit like you've said yeah. you're looking in a window you look he's going right I love the craft of what's going on here I was a really good craftsman yeah absolutely and, and you know I, I'm in an industry that honestly I felt so frustrated by mm. because there wasn't it didn't seem like anyone was making any waves. That's right. And 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 at, and at a point, I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to do jewelry that I that I think suits what I like. Mm. So start to do that, and then took it to America. But it was that, and wearing a purple suit. Yes. That was that was yeah. the sort of combination. It yeah. was perfect, and I hadn't strategically thought about that. Yeah. I just loved the suit. I yeah. My repertoire was this or the tangerine, one, <laughs> which which I regret. I sold for charity. Oh wow! I did a charity, not sold. I, I gave it to a charity itself, which is for doing something for homeless people, and they were looking for like designer clothes, and I donated my suit. And as much as that was a good cause, I wish that I still had it. Oh. <laughs> but I have to say, you know, the, the interesting thing about um, when I when I started, and it, it it's definitely been a, a mantra throughout the whole time is I always designed to build a relationship with the wearer. I'd hear stories like you're telling me a lot, like, oh, you know, I wore your suit and I got this job, or I, I, I was wearing it to the Oscars and something happened, or I was always hearing that a lot. There was a real intention in uh, the creation. You know, you, there was always this building a relationship because that's how I started. When you make stuff, as you know, when you're making stuff for someone on a personal level, it goes way beyond even the design. Mm. It's all about understanding them, right? Mm. And creating that connect. So, um, so that's when I was building these collections, that that mindset was always in there. Yeah, no, it's very, very interesting. I see a lot of what you've just said. I mean, we're working on a, some sort of wedding rings, quite extraordinary yeah. ones at the moment for, for this couple. And, and they've come, they, they've come through Amy, my daughter Amy's mm. friends, they're her age group, getting married. And before they sort of came here through Amy, he was buying her everything at Graf. Wow. Because that's like, you know, where you go. It's like top of the pile. Yeah. But Graf's not about design. It's, it's about, yeah. you know, intrinsic values, yeah. gems. And I think she liked them, of course, who wouldn't? Because they're big rocks, but she really liked the idea of something being more designed for them. And, and he came with her once and he was blown away. Yeah. He, I don't think he'd ever thought about the fact that you could, that there was jewelry that was more than just the parts. Yeah. You know? and, and now they are completely our clients. Brilliant. Sit with them, like it's all about, Brilliant. you know, and, and we're doing these really unique things for them and they're excited about it. And yeah. that's what you would have the same thing with people. Absolutely. See it coming together. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, you know, that, that sort of idea of, uh, of, of processes, somewhere along the line, 
we've kind of lost a lot of that. Yeah. People don't, don't think about, we think you take it for granted. Yeah. Because you go, well, I can make things. Yeah. I'm a tailor. And, yeah. And then, but when people see things coming together, I've never met one, it doesn't matter how famous they are, that's not blown away. Oh, by God, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's yeah. a great thing to, to have out the front talking about that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, that's the other thing is, is with you, with your work, is actually your skill of execution. So when you get challenged, you know, there's no challenge that's like, no, I really know yeah. what I'm doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no, and that's, no. and that, that is, uh, yeah. that's unique. It's funny because we yeah. have a thing like, I suppose just because it's so bonkers, but I say to people, I can make a tiara. They're like, what? Well, I can make a tiara. Because mm. that's a bit like saying I can make a crown. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't get a lot of call, <laughs> but I can make a tiara. Mm. Coming into that period in, in the sort of like, I suppose the mid to late 90s was mm. the Call Britannia. Yes, that's and, right. And I, I, I remember you being right in the middle yeah, of that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, really playing up to it and having like prime ministers as mates. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and yeah. It wasn't Margaret Thatcher. No, <laughs> no it wasn't. It was, uh, it was Tony Blair. It just Tony become Blair. prime minister. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was interesting. So I remember getting the invite to Downing Street and then a mate of mine calls me up. Ross Lovegrove is this designer and he says to me, oh, um, oh, what are you doing? I said, well, actually, I'm going to Downing Street. He says, oh, so am I. So we both met each other outside and we went in. And then it was quite interesting because everyone was sort of posturing that, you know. It's a bit shabby when you first go in. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I was like, I mean, it's a lot smaller than you expect, right? But interesting enough, everyone was kind of, um, Posturing, and I was like excited because I mean, yeah. I mean, come on, it's Downing Street. You know, you see that on TV, on the news. I mean, come on. So you know, I, you know, I, I went straight in, and I remember Tony coming in and talking to everybody, and I just went to shut up to him, and you know, start talking to him about uh, a couple of ideas I had, and uh, and then that's kind of how I got to know Tony, and eventually ended up making him some suits. It was a great period, wasn't it? Yeah, very it good suddenly. Period. And I hate even the term called Britannia because it's but whatever. Mm. It was. It was really cool to be British. Yeah. And, yeah. and it really helped. Yeah. I mean, you know, talk about these things like a push from a government. Mm. That that was just, I mean, it kind of came really from government. It was a change. It was a sea change. First of all, of what, what politics can be. And oh, yeah, yeah. No, there was, that, there was something very, because he was a young man and, you know, and he was just open to uh, a new way of doing things because I think up to him, there was no creators ever allowed at Downing Street. I think he was the first one to open up to creators. Right. Yeah, so yeah. he was yeah. a, he was a very unique time, and you know, I mean, everyone was Oasis. There was a whole thing. There was even a documentary made about it. So, um, so no, it was a, it was a very interesting time. And then Vanity Fair did this huge Cool Britannia issue, and you know, put everyone in it. You were sat on the letterbox. I was sat on the letterbox exactly. <laughs> How iconic, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not a little box, exactly. Yeah. I remember the time. It was a Saro. Yeah, I was yeah, actually. Yeah. It's interesting because when I had to sit on there, I was like, I was feeling really uncomfortable about sitting on there. But they're not meant for sitting. <laughs> exactly. <I was> like, <laughs> for me. Right, exactly. But no. But it actually turned out to be a very iconic picture, and you know. So yeah, it's it's interesting how those things turn out because in the moment you don't recognize no. what it is, you know. No. Yeah. And that lasted a while, didn't it? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Givenchy. Yeah. That was a big deal. Yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah. So, what your title? You were a creative director of of menswear. Yeah. Menswear. Givenchy, yeah. 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 So, who had been before you? No, no, they were, didn't have a men's designer right. before. So, I was the first. And how did that feel going into that kind of well, old inter- Parisian? Well, interesting house? enough is um, again a story I don't really talk about, but I had been approached by the group before and uh, actually when they were looking at Dior and um, and at the time because I was the frame of mind that I was in and as a designer I was I wasn't as enthusiastic then um, Hedy Slamam got the gig and then uh, and then I saw what the power of the group right. did behind yeah, him yeah, yeah. and I kind of was like oh 
<laughs> oops. <laughs> yeah, so then when the opportunity came again, um, I decided I'd do it. So I got offered quite a, I got offered a brand, I actually got offered um, uh, Kenzo before, and I looked at it, but you know, it required me to kind of move to Paris and, you know, basically not have any space for my brand, so that wasn't possible. And then I got offered Givenchy. So when we, when I said it was there before, and you said it wasn't, there wasn't really the title from the men's. But mm. so you've got an archive here. Did you feel? Uh, or, no, or no, not? no, no. I mean, menswear was really, you know, you, you're in a way, in a way, you're starting with a clean sheet because right. there was no, um, no kind of ideal print outside of looking at Hubert and the kind of looking at some aspects of how he created and pulling on that. So that's basically what I did. So I wanted to kind of create the French equivalent to, you know, a Brit gent, but a modern version of that. So that was the kind of essence of what I kind of brought to the house. I mean, the thing is, is it required a lot of work because the team structure wasn't really there. So it was kind of a requirement to build it up from even the PR to, to all of it actually. Which was interesting. So you were you having to spend like your week in Paris, kind of. Yeah, I mean it was. Yeah, the traveling was brutal actually. I remember I spent four days, roughly a week mm -hmm. there and traveling and. And you, two, but you still had your business back here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was balancing the both. Yeah. Which was interesting. I mean, it's it's. Uh, in retrospect, I should have required it a little bit more thought process from an organizational point. Because also when, when you're at Givenchy and you're a creative director, everyone assumes they're putting money into your core business. So your, so your value structure suddenly goes up. Mm. So it was, uh, yeah, it was an interesting experience, definitely, definitely. But I enjoyed just being the creative and not having to worry about the business. Did you find that there was any pushback from, from, from the brand? Uh, like, or the, whoever's the, the finance people, whoever's, you know. I mean, the, 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 I mean, the pushback in truth, um, no, I mean, I had a lot of support from uh, Yves Cassel. So Yves Cassel was the president of Vuitton and a big driver of LVMH. And in mm. fact, he's the one who brought me into the group. So I had a really lot of support from him. Got really good support from Arno as well. There's a couple of financial situations where I needed, I wanted more money to be more creative and I was really challenged by the president of the company at the time. Mm. And Arno stepped in and gave me what I needed. So there was always, there was definitely pushback. There's no question about that. And it was definitely challenging to drive through what I'd call a core message. Because again, a lot of the creative directors, or at least for me, I'd been running my business. Right, so uh, my mindset around the design process was pretty commercial, just because that's all I knew. Well, okay, so I'm going to challenge that right. because the, first of all, you made—is uh, it Manja style the cartoon? Yeah, that, I, made, I don't I'm, know I'm, how I'm, much I'm, they cost to make. But <laughs> I was, yeah, yeah Manja style cartoon. Yes, I remember seeing that and thinking, "Wow, this is amazing." Anyway, and then. The No Boundaries yeah, one, yeah, absolutely. which was like something that was, I mean, it was like a movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that didn't come cheap. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. <laughs> that had a cast of thousands in it, well, maybe yeah. hundreds. Yeah, but, but no, so you're right. So the manga cartoon, um, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't cheap, but it was a really important tool for me to use for the collection because I've always made film for my own collections. Mm. And so when, um, when the show started, um, I wanted to introduce something else, but I knew everyone would expect me to make another film. So the only way I could play with that was an animation. Also, I'm known for color, right? So um, I didn't want to bring the same resources of color into the collection of Givenchy because it wanted to have its own language. So what I decided to do was make an animation which was rich in color. And so I create this rich palette. So in your mind, you've seen this rich palette of color, but when you actually see the collection, it wasn't that. Mm. So there was a, it was an interesting play on, on the mind with that. 
So that's why I, I used the animation. Yeah. It was really about demonstrating one skill and also telling a story, which was effectively how I got the job and what I was going to do. Because the, the challenge at Givenchy, and you know, I looked at McQueen and I looked at other designers before, they, were all, they all had difficulty in that house. And so, and I think the issue simply was that, you know, they were taking an approach and not necessarily being understood. So within the film, I was telling a story of, look, I'm respecting the house, because I mean, you've seen it, so you see how I'm fighting with the mannequins, but I'm not fighting mm. with mannequins. So the thing is, you don't play a history, you know, you evolve with it, right? So there was, I was telling this story of the approach I was going to take to designing the collection. So what it did is it was a way of a setup to the actual collection that came down the catwalk. And I thought that was important because so that did was- did you play it prior to the yeah, catwalk? Yeah, yeah. So what happened is, is you arrive, place going to black and then the screens would go on and I'd show the animation and, it, and I did the voiceover it. So, you know, so it, I was really telling the story yeah. of how I got the job. I made it was humorous because, you know, you, you, I made my bespoke room into like a dojo and, you know, I was, I was obsessed with cutting and I had like, you know, every scene cut until you could have a sword, nail clippers. I mean, it was, it was you know, taking a piss. But in the same breath, I was saying, actually, that's how I got the job because they respected what I do, right? And then, uh, and then it was a question of making choices. Because you, there's there's a thing where I throw the, some you know, scissors, scissors up in the air yeah. and it's kind of I thought that could have gone horribly wrong. Yeah, of course, caught them on the way down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. But anyway, so those two films they were both amazing. And then you know I think at that time you'd said to me if you hadn't picked up like your mum's sewing machine it mm. would have been a, a camera because yeah. you love yeah. film. Yeah, you know yeah. you directed at yeah. least both of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, absolutely. And then you, you had that sort of epic documentary. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a man's story. And that, 12 years. 12 years. I mean, yeah, and I, I was telling Amy about it because I remember it being 12 years. Yeah. It was like, yeah. that's quite an intrusion. It is. I mean, it was difficult. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, at the time when I first saw the, uh, the first cut, I couldn't speak to the director for like a month or two. What, because he put too much in or? No, because he was, in truth, I was shocked. In a way I can't even, I can probably articulate it now. Because a friend of mine said to me, um, and he kind of explained it to me, because he said usually when you see your life in that level of detail, because for me each sort of minute or 30 seconds represents an enormous amount of time. And so it allowed me to, when I watch it, I'm actually there, right? And so he's, he said that you usually see, you know, the idea is when you, you only see those clarity of your life, apparently when you're dying, right? And so it kind of you know, got me because it's, you know, um, in the film, you've got when I actually uh, pit Ganell who became my wife, mm. from the airport, in the car, deciding if I'm gonna do this with her or not. And I know that, so when I see it, maybe it's not being said, but I remember it. Yeah, yeah. And to have that time yeah. captured on camera is quite, it's quite a thing. Yeah. I, I, I do remember coming out of the cinema and thinking that wasn't in any way was <laughs> Well, because it started exactly what I was expecting. Yeah. It was cool. It was about you. You were in Port Bella, yeah. you know, it was yeah. like all that stuff. And then it, then it developed into something else, which, which is, I think, what makes it quite unique. Yeah. So have you got anything else in the, the, the pipeline for yeah. filmmaking? Yeah. So, um, yeah, actually, fine enough, I'm working on... Uh, uh, three projects right now. So one's a feature film, one documentary, and then I'm doing another TV series. Oh, right. oh really? Yeah. Ah, that's right, I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, I remember I was coming from uh, LAX into West Hollywood and it was a big old billboard yeah. with you 
uh, standing by an ironing board. Is <laughs> yeah. that right? I think no, no, right. actually, no. But I do. But the iron board does work, right? No, it's, uh, it's I'm in like an orange suit, and, it, yeah. and it's like You're called a house of Botang. House yeah. of Botang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't an ironing board. No, it's not an ironing board. But uh, I get it though, because there's yeah. a, there's another film where I'm 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 kind of laying fabric out. Right. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I, but I get it though. I tell I get the connect. Yeah. But no, so the House of Botang, funny enough, was born out of the documentary because what happened was, was um, the director, who uh, obviously became a very close friend, we, you know, after like six, seven years of filming, I think it was six, seven years, I was like trying to get him to stop. So I basically took him out to LA and I introduced him to some, you know, big film producers like Joel Silver and Joe Brackheimer thinking they'll just say to him, you got to stop filming, this is crazy. But they encouraged him to film more. And so off the back of that, I met this really um, powerful agent called Ari Emanuel, who's the, the head of um, William Morris Endeavor IMG right now. And everyone said he is the big agent of America. In fact, there's even a TV series out there called, um, I think it's called Entourage. And, he's, and Ari is the, it's based oh, him. we love Entourage, yeah. don't we? We watched every one. Yeah, so I know Ari, Ari. So that's basically based on him. <laughs> so what happens is, is I meet him, and then he says to me, he goes very Hollywood on me, and uh, uh, I, mean, I can't even say what he says because I'm kind of shy about it. But uh, he goes very Hollywood. When did and, that start? Uh, what? <laughs> being shy about it. No, no, that bit, that, no, no, because what you said, it was just, you know, it was just so Hollywood. And coming from the UK, you just can't, you're like, that's just like, what is that? But anyway, the point, the point I'm, I'm making is that uh, he then wanted, said you should do a TV series. I'm like, I'm just trying to get this film finished. I mean, it's going for seven years. And, uh, and then I ended up, meet, and then I, I have a very close friend called Ben Silverman who's also a big producer out in, in, in Hollywood. And I told him, look, by the way, I was with Ari Emanuel. He says, no, no, I've got this, I've got this. I said, what, what do you mean you got this? And he said, before I knew it, I had a deal done wow. with uh, Robert Redford and Sundance. So that's kind of how it happened. So in 2006, you got an OBE yeah. from the Queen. Yeah. Oh, when I saw that picture, I was a bit jealous actually, because I got one, but I, could, I had to make do with Prince Charles. Because <laughs> yeah. when, you're, when you're there in the back, you don't know who it's going to be, do you? And then, yeah. and then they make an announcement, and then, then I suppose you go, <clears throat> if it's Prince Charles, you go, well, at least it wasn't Princess Anne. <laughs> but what you really want is the Queen. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. Inter it's interesting because I actually. I actually knew it was going to be the Queen, actually, but um, but as you know, when you get your honour, you get put in that room, and it's quite an interesting experience because you, it's a room of people like, and everyone's kind of preparing themselves mm. to get their honour. So there's kind of it's an interesting vibe in there. Yeah. You know, yeah. I made myself a morning suit. I had to. I made a morning oh, suit excellent. in purple, of course. Yeah. Purple fruit piece, oh, yeah. I could so. have had it taken up on the same one. <laughs> Absolutely, and purple and and. Uh, so were there many? Were there many heroes in the room? No, there was a couple of people in the in the room that I knew, which yeah. was was nice. But it's a very interesting because, in truth, you're nervous, right? You know, you're at Buckingham Palace and you line up, and then you know they kind of put say your name, and then you got, and they kind of give you the rules. You got don't turn your back and. <laughs> You think, well, I don't want to get any of this wrong, you know. And so, you, you know, so my time came, they said, man, I'm standing in front of the Queen. Now, I had met the Queen a few times before, so I felt quite, you know, confident yeah. that I'm, you know, yeah. I'll be all right. And, uh, but someone said to me, no, no, it's, it's quite a thing. So I don't know what happened to you, but for me, when I got in front of her, she was speaking to me. I didn't hear what she said. I quite literally phased out and I didn't hear anything. And so the only thing I'd say is, well, I think, well, then I should just come make you a suit. And she basically cracked a smile, which everyone was like, what did you say? 
Because she's standing on a box. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's basically. So you've got to be very careful. Don't make her laugh too much, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, it was, it was definitely an experience. The only, I, the only reason I ask is where I, I got mine in 2013 and mm. everybody other than me was an Olympian. Wow. So it was all the British Olympic team. Oh, wow, that's they fantastic. They were either knighted or honoured in some way. And it that's was fantastic. just really cool. That's really cool. they all knew each other. Yeah. Oh, and, brilliant. And there was a couple of soldiers. Because oh, there's brilliant. always a couple of soldiers. Yeah. It was just basically the, everybody coming out and she's like, wow, this is amazing. That is cool, actually. Yeah. That's very cool. So I'm going to move to Africa mm. because you've been, you really have been very passionate about um, your roots, obviously. Yeah, and course. I think, you know, um, just unity yeah. and, and uh, an identity. Yeah. You know, you've made these things that you've been talking about and, yeah. and sort of promoting, I think, yeah. for a long, long time. Yeah. And so your parents from Ghana yeah. and you went there in 2000 and met the king. Yeah. And I was thinking, well, of course he met the king. Who wouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> but you started a whole kind of, this movement of Made in Africa. Yeah, right. So I went to Ghana, because I'm from a tribe called Ashanti, and so I met the king of Ashanti. And he gave me a special honor, and, uh, and I actually went uh, with uh, Lennox Lewis, who was the heavyweight champion of the world at the point, at that time. And so we both got an honor together, and we had to speak. And then while we were there, um, we then were able to meet the president, who was President Kofor at the time. And um, I was able to meet him on my own. And I've always had a, a strong ideas around development. And so um, basically I pitched him an idea and he was, he was kind of up for it. So to my surprise, I didn't expect him to say, I'm interested. I expect him to say something else, right? So I suddenly realized that I could do that. And so then uh, off the back of that, uh, with a couple of friends of mine, we set up Made in Africa, which effectively really was two things. I mean, the main thing was to PR opportunities in Africa. That was really its remit. I mean, we, uh, and one of the big focuses was uh, infrastructure. So, the language around Africa at that time was a very particular language. The language was very much, you can't invest because it's corrupt. You know, aid was a big point. And I knew Bono and uh, Bob Geloff. And, you know, we had, you know, particularly with Bob Geloff, had heated discussions with him around development and investment in infrastructure. So the vision of Africa at that point was a place where you did not invest. And so Maine and Africa was all about changing that narrative. Because again, my agenda is very simple with this stuff. If it means African development, right capital in the right places, then I'm there. But also I'm very aware of the politics, right? So there is a real um, miscommunication around the politic around Africa. And there's a lot of mistruths, you know. The argument around uh, corruption is not correct. You know, the truth is, and, and this is just a fact, you, the idea of donating to Africa is a myth. Africa's donating to the rest of the world because it's not getting true value for its goods. No. And that's part of the reason why the infrastructure is what it is. Because without it, you can't create the full chain. So it's, there is an agenda when it comes to Africa. It's this you know, hard fact. No, I, I, I can see that. It suits people. So let's go back to a bit of fashion. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> we've, we've certainly taken a, a diversion around fa fascinating parts of your story. Mm. So um, last year, I couldn't go, unfortunately, New York. AI, mm. I love that authentic identity fashion mm. show. Yeah. So that was a big deal. Yeah, big deal. That was deal. like Bonanza. You're very good at Bonanza. Yes, though, apparently so. But I have a couple of friends who went and went, okay, that was something. <laughs> so tell us about it. So the thing about that, so there's a lot in that fashion show. I mean, there's, firstly, I hadn't shown in New York for a very long time, in truth, probably like 20 
years or something. So really that's a big thing. And also, um, you know, I mean, you, you'll get this, you know, uh, sometimes you just got to do something. You know, see it as a gamble, see it as your every language you want to pull it to. But I just felt the need to just do something. And then um, uh, I actually did this fashion show a year before in Nigeria, uh, which was called Africanism, which was uh, a term that a really famous musician called Felikuti came out with. And basically he says, Africa doesn't need socialism or capitalism, it needs Africanism. And so I decided to take that and create a collection around it. And I knew the only way, place I could show it was in Africa, right, as the birthplace of it. So I created this collection and I showed it. And then it was clear to me after that show, I could do something in America. Because again, I've always wanted to bridge the two cultures, mm -hmm. right? African-American and uh, Africa. So then um, I decided to do it at the Harlem Apollo because Harlem Polo is probably one of the most historical spaces for African-American culture in mm. terms of music, right? Everyone's performed there. Girls got her and Prince. They all performed there, you know, it's, it's kind of the birthplace of that creative talent. So um, I, then I made a decision that I was going to do that. And then, of course, uh, I had to find a date to do it. So then I thought, well, why not do it just before the Met Gala because everyone's in town so it kind of makes sense but my PR company who I got to uh, promote the show were kind of like uh, are you out of your mind you know you got Met Gala on the, the Monday you're going to do the show on Sunday it's no one's going to go and it, no one goes to Harlem I was going to so ask it's like, no one goes to Harlem struggled. No one's going to go to Harlem, it's a Sunday, it's just not going to happen. And so, um, so it was a bit of a gamble and, uh, you know, I kind of, so that's what I want to do. And then, um, and then I got a huge amount of support from a lot of my friends because at one point I wasn't sure that we we're going to, anyone's going to show up, you know, you know, but, uh, but the good news was that, uh, I called some friends and, and then the press really got excited. And then basically, uh, it was basically a full house. It mm. was uh, 1,500, people, and it even rained. So in fact, my PR company eventually was saying to me, uh, you're oversubscribed, you know, you're gonna, it's gonna be a bit of a- It's gonna be people standing in the rain uh, it's outside. Gonna, it's gonna be a bit of a problem. And I have to say, we did get this, the, the, the apparently there was a bit of seating issues, <laughs> just put it that way. And, um, but uh, fortunately, uh, the experience kind of allowed everyone to just, you know, yeah. relax into it and enjoy enjoy it. And what I did is the show was I took these pictures of these models that I used in Nigeria, who I'd casted off the street, and so they had a very particular look in their eyes, you know. And so I made a short film of the still images and I, and I started the show with that. So the, you had that pan of the camera going up the, the images. And then what I did is I got a live orchestra who were the Harlem Orchestra, which is basically African-American women playing violins, playing classical music. So I did like a silent movie as, a, as an introduction. And I think that as the start position Created, and I knew what I was doing, but I knew I wanted to create a very beautiful, uh, deep experience. And what I got at the end of the show, which was very particular, and I, and I, and I wanted it to, to feel that way, was I had a lot of the, the African-Americans uh, come to me and say to me they felt really proud. That was a, a resounding... Mm sort of message I got because I've and I understood it because a lot of people don't you know African-American culture has a very particular relationship with Africa and there's, there's a real disconnect 
and what I was able to do with the fashion show and particularly with the film up front was help them to connect to it in a, in a very So do you think that's different to like UK? in Europe or England? I know, it's very different. Very, different. Oh, very, very different. Because yeah. African-Americans were taken to America as slaves. And so their, their backdrop, real hard cut right. okay. from their roots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and it's something they, it's painful yeah. to connect with because there's no connect. So once you're able to uh, build a picture that they can connect with, it's very profound. Yeah. And that piece I understand very well. Uh, so that was the, 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 well, I, the, around, uh, the feeling around yeah. the pride. You know, I mean, you know, there's other aspects of the, the show that you know, people loved, and, but that was something very specific that I wanted to, to do. So I have a feeling we're probably never going to just see an ordinary catwalk show. <laughs> not, not that they ever were. I couldn't imagine you just going back to know this is fashion. It's fashion and a lot more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. I feel that is um, amazing, actually. So um, we've chatted for about an hour. And, and I feel like we got quite a lot of gold nuggets. In fact, it's a bit like gold mine. Oh, to thank be you. Honest. Yeah. Oh, very so good. So I want to thank you for being so open right, and brilliant. inspirational. Thanks. And uh, thanks a lot.